0: Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's Eavesdrop on Experts Changing the World. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. What does public transport have to do with anthropology? Well, quite a lot actually. So says Professor Andrew Dawson, Professor and Chair of Anthropology at the School of Social and Political Sciences, University of Melbourne. Andrew's made his way from England via all sorts of places. Ashington in Northern England, Bosnia, right through to Melbourne where he's lived for around 15 years. Mobility, migration and identity feature heavily in all of Andrew's work. Most of his research is done in cars or on buses with people. He's even titled one of his works, Why Marx Was a Bad Driver, Alienation to Sensuality in the Anthropology of Automobility. Professor Andrew Dawson sat down in one spot long enough to chat to our reporter, Steve Grimwade.
1: I feel like we should be doing this interview in the back of a car. I think I think this would be the, that would be the way we should conduct this interview. In fact, from now on, we're going to conduct all our interviews in cars to get the most out of people. Uh now, prior to coming on air, we've been discussing mobility and the fact that that is at the heart of all your work. I'm interested what brought you to come to mobility what why does that interest you most what is it about you mm. that drives your mm. interest in mobility that drives your research
2: um well a number of things really one of them is a, a very very simple practical story and it's actually why I got into anthropology in the first place when I was a kid I used to move around the country had no money the only way I could do it was by hitchhiking and I realized pretty quickly that um People who pick you up, they usually want to talk. They usually want to talk about themselves. And you could always get an extra mile or two out of them if you could keep the conversation <laughs> going. And that made me a particularly adept social researcher, but especially an anthropological researcher because anthropology is it's not an interrogative uh, social science. It's not about asking questions very much. It's about eliciting, making people comfortable. Making people speak and opening up their worldview to you, so I think that's the the first reason why I got into mobility. Um, part of it is also an an intellectual thing. Uh, um, like a lot of people, I've been concerned that the social sciences have been traditionally quite sedentary. So, for example, anthropologists are interested in in cultures and they're in communities. But often they see cultures and communities as sort of outcomes of uh, people living in places. Um, And the fact is that people have always been mobile and increasingly are mobile, especially with globalization. And so we have to change the way we think about our objects of study, communities and cultures, also as being not just outcomes of dwelling, but the movement through, through them too. Um, And then a third thing is it's sort of a moral reason why I got into mobility, which is just um, feeling ill at ease, especially with the way that refugees are treated and feeling from an early age that, that movement, putting one's foot in front of the other foot is a kind of an intrinsically natural thing. And putting up borders and stopping that seems to me to be intrinsically wrong. It's at the root of nationalism, which is, frankly, I think one of the most insidious ideologies of the modern age, which leads to the death of many people. So my reasons are methodological, life experience driven, theoretically driven, but above all politically driven. That's why I'm into mobility.
1: I'm picturing you as a young man hitchhiking. And finding your way in the world via conversation and listening to people, mm. I think what I'm interested in is the idea of what comes first, the anthropologist or the person. And I suspect it's you at the heart of your research is is your point of view. Mm. I mean, and how do you distinguish between your own drives and mm. point of view and the outcome and and letting someone talk?
2: There's a lot of nebulous distinctions that we live by. Uh, One classic one in academia is the difference between reason and emotion, okay? Um, And, you know, if that distinction had any credibility, Marx would never have written, okay? Marx wrote good work, not just because he was a fabulous political economist, but because he was driven by a sense of Injustice that he felt when he saw poverty all around him, and it, it's the same with me. i here. I'm nowhere near the, uh, the the sort of stature of Mark. You've got a lovely but, beard. Oh, thank, yeah, absolutely. That's right, and paunch too. But but you know the the original question is you know what drives you? What drives me? I guess is part excuse the pun given my interest in mobility. But but I I, I can't really make a distinction between. The man as an emotional being with passions and political concerns and also the academic um, who is cold-heartedly and with reason and rationale developing important theoretical and empirical works. To me, they're indis- indistinguishable.
1: I should tell the listeners that there was a very serious uh, look on your face <laughs> when you were saying that, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, right. I suspect I have a whole host of nebulous questions with regards to anthropology, and I apologise for that ahead of time because yeah. i always tried to understand this science um, against my own rational view of the world and, and measuring and data and things like that. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'm going to go to um, back to a place that you studied uh, from the mid-'80s to Ashington. Mm. Um, Ashington's you know, potentially an unremarkable little town in northern England, mm. three miles away from the North Sea and facing towards Norway. Um, it was once known as the biggest coal mining village of the world, um, but deindustrialization changed that. Mm. Now you've done a number of different studies across time, and you know instead of gathering huge amounts of data, at one point you're talking to one woman, you're talking a woman mm. uh, to a woman by the name of Elizabeth Ord mm-hmm. in the latter years of her life mm. about aging and dying. Mm. Um, why? Well, how did you come to meet Elizabeth?
2: Um, I came to meet Elizabeth through doing Ashington, and I came to Ashington through a particular means, which was. Anthropology traditionally has been the study of other cultures, so to speak. And in the 70s and 80s, there was a critique of that. And that critique said, um, you know, this is an endeavor which is intrinsically colonialist in many ways. And it's about time people started getting back not to looking at the other, but to looking at themselves. Um, And I am from Ashington. Uh, My family are a coal mining family. My father sort of did pretty well. He went into management and got out of the industry, but my family are coal mining people and footballing people. Um, So uh, this for me was doing anthropology at home as part of the post-industrial critique. Um, The interest in focusing in on the micro comes from a a, a number of different angles. One of them is to do with the fact that it was at home. It's very hard to generalise and talk big picture about your home because you're just so intimate with all the people who are there. So partly it's an outcome of that. But it's also partly a political choice in the sense that um, big theories for me have always run the risk of doing violence, to individuals, as creative, unique, agential human beings. So was that that drove me towards looking at individuals like Elizabeth Or? But, but also it's partly a stylistic thing. I, I, I think that, you know, if you want to tell a big picture, I think that you can present those arguments much more effectively through the intimacy of talking about individuals because people relate to individuals, they relate to human beings. So it's partly a communicative strategy that I'm mm. choosing as well.
1: well. What was it that got you out of coal? And was, I mean, you're probably a, a child of the 80s, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah that's So, right. I mean, you're coming out of high school and coal is probably finishing up around this time or yeah. in, in Ashington.
2: Yeah, Oh, what got me out of it? Yeah. Um, it was just w- one simple thing, which was the Bosnian War. Uh, when I was a kid, my... Parents had this love of Yugoslavia. We used to go on coastal holidays down there every couple of years.
1: And no, back- no family background in um, space or-
2: o- on- Only in that my father had some friends from within the non-aligned movement. He was a socialist um, who, and Yugoslavia was a kind of leading light. So we'd sometimes go down and visit them. But, but Yugoslavia was a big place for British mass tourism. In the, in, the, in the 60s and 70s, so we used to go down there, and then collapse of communism came, none of us expected it, in 1990, 1991, and lo and behold, this place that I associated with sunbaking and nights out at discos had become a killing field, so it was, you know, deeply personal for me, and and there was also a sense of oh, Andy, you're not a real anthropologist because you study Britain, you've got to study the other. So I chose a damn difficult other. I chose Bosnians. They have a very difficult language, serbo So it was almost like a rite of passage into anthropological manhood for me, going over there. But, but a choice that I definitely really am pleased I made. It's been a wonderful experience.
1: Is there something about uh, covering uh, the contemporary with regards to anthropology that is is mm. new or newer than was expected from an anthropologist? Or oh is it yeah, always yeah. Contemporary?
2: No, no, no. That's a really good point. Uh, I mean, I think there's been historically a, a kind of division of labor in the social sciences, with sociology does the West, anthropology does the rest, and sociology was associated because of that with change. It was the discipline that looked at why things changed and how things changed. Um, Anthropology, on the other hand, was seen often as the opposite. It was the discipline that looked at why things stayed the same. And many of its early theories were about things staying the same, such as functionalism. If you take one little bit of a society out, the whole thing will crumble. You know, we look at stasis and the lack of change. Um, But it's moved on since then. And, and, and I think that, that probably more than any other discipline I know, anthropology is sort of super contemporary because it's all about this intimate engagement with a group of people over many years. You're trying to capture their worldview, how they view the world, and you let them tell you what's important. And ordinary people are on the cusp, they're on the wave of what's happening. So you're forced. Always to be on the wave of what's happening. It's um, so like with my research with Bosnia. Academics mostly are writing about conflict, where well, the conflict happened twenty odd years ago. Anthropologists aren't doing that anymore. I'm looking about at the development of the tourism industry there, um,
1: and that's what you're doing now.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm just going off there in two weeks' time, actually, to to carry on this kind of very interesting project.
1: It's interesting having these embedded relationships in these spaces. I guess you yeah. get to know a lot of people on the ground. How yeah. does that shape your research?
2: Knowing people on the ground shapes your research in several ways. Uh, the, the first one is that, that you feel a kind of moral duty to represent them as accurately as you possibly can. You also feel... Um, aware of an ethical responsibility to to not say things that could harm them but also it can make you uncritical of them and that's something that I've I'm always struggling with because the people that I work with in Bosnia are serbs who by and large were the aggressors in the Bosnian war I work with people who Will defend the strategy of ethnically cleansing Muslims. They'll even defend the strategy of raping Muslim women. So that that I find difficult, um, and and that's a struggle, seeking to represent the logic of their worldview, but at the same time be critical of it.
1: So, what are you hoping to do now? Returning,
2: <laughs> We have got an interesting summer ahead. So, I have to give you a bit of background on the project to, for that's it to fine. make sense. As I said, most people, when they write about Bosnia, they see it as a sort of a place for just looking at conflict. I'm looking at the development of the tourism industry there. I'm working in three places, all of them in the ethnically cleansed parts of eastern Bosnia, where there was a population prior to the war of about 80% Muslims. Now it's down to about 5 or 6%. It's predominantly Serb area now. One place I'm working in is a ski resort Um, that in the war was where the siege of Sarajevo was conducted from. Another place I'm working is um, a whitewater rafting centre, a place of great fun, but in the very river where most of the dead bodies were dumped during the war. Another place I'm working in is a health spa, where women go particularly for the amelioration of reproductive disorders because the waters are seen as fecund. But this was also a rape camp during the war precisely because the waters were seen as fecund, because Slavic people believe that the women make no biological contribution to the identity of the fetus. It's men who do. So a Serbian person raping a Muslim woman is seen as him making a Serbian body within a Muslim woman. Um, so what I'm interested in looking at is how that dark secret of the horrors of the past percolates through, dark public secret, if you like, because local people know it all, know this, how it percolates through in the presence within the tourism encounter. Now, the research will be carried out almost exclusively on buses. But uh, as I told you before, I'm mean, particularly interested in mobility. The buses that bring tourists from Sarajevo to, which is a Muslim-dominated area, to these um, Serbian-dominated tourist sites. Now, <laughs> the reason this happens is because of a strange contradiction in the peace agreement. What happened in the peace agreement was that Serbia was given the territory that it conquered. But, but on the other hand, Muslims were said, you can return to those places from where you've been displaced. Of course, it's difficult for them to return because they'd be going back to a place where they're not welcome. But these are their only properties, So what they do is they fail to sustainably return. They take properties back. They maybe make a livelihood from those properties, but they live in other parts of Bosnia where they're safe. So what you have is Muslim tourist operators bringing people down to these Serbian areas, and these Serbs are hiring the land from Muslims in these areas to operate things like, the whitewater rafting ventures. Now, here's the thing. The real secret on these buses, of course, is that the young men and women are wondering, are some of them the offspring of the rapes that took place in this area? So there's a constant sense that these people who I'm working with may actually be my brothers and sisters. Even though they 're ethnic others, so it 's that horrible nightmarish public secret and how it percolates through in the present that i 'm looking at in this new project yeah it 's
1: devastating stuff yeah,
2: yeah,
1: yeah the tourists themselves are they are they Muslim are they any are they just generic tourists from anywhere else in the world are, are, are there a certain type of person that 's going back
2: they 're from all parts of the world and They're from all levels of ignorance and awareness of what happened in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Last year, I picked up three young Swedish hitchhikers um, in this area, Um, and we had a fantastic conversation about ethnic conflict in the area. And about an hour into it, I realized that we were talking about two entirely different ethnic conflicts, I was talking about the struggles between Muslims and Croats and Serbs, and they were talking about Game of Thrones, which is uh, because there's numerous film sets for Games of Thrones in this area, and they had no knowledge at all of the ethnic conflict that took place there.
1: (laughs) Mm. It also sounds like you're almost talking about the mobility of the stories themselves, the way we reflect upon Mm. places via narrative as well. I mean, the... Cause I, yeah, but I'm, uh, that's, I don't know where to go on that topic. It's it's so, not fraught, but it's, as you say, it's, yeah. I mean, it's dark and it's, it's yeah. I mean, yeah. how does, how do you take self-care in, in, with regards to being in these spaces and yeah. talking about these things? Is that something you think about?
2: Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was, a, it was tricky early on because Serbs especially, you know, felt let down by the West, you know they saw themselves as allies in the Second World War. And then, lo and behold, when Kosovo kicked off, NATO bombed Belgrade, and they felt let down. And And they, they would also say, we're ethnically cleansing because we're protecting Europe against the rise of Islamic fundamentalism, which was crazy. And so in the early days, as a British man going there, there was a lot of hostility towards me. But, but Bosnian people are are remarkable. They're so used to living with conflict, and they're so used to the need to just get over it, and, and often move back to where they've been ethnically cleansed from and live next to neighbours who've even killed members of their family, that they have this amazing capacity for just just getting on. And, and I feel part of that getting on. I, I don't feel even vaguely threatened at all now and also they're very familiar it's just Andy and Andy the anthropologist crucially which means that I don't go and ask pointy questions I'm the typical anthropological fly on the wall hanging out just talking about everyday life watching as much as asking
1: Maybe because we're sort of uh, beginning to um, talk about xenophobia in a way. Maybe Uh, we can go back to Ashington again, uh, this town in Northern England. Um, One of your studies was based, it was actually around the topic of hating immigration, but loving immigrants. And indeed, I think that title comes from a conversation with an individual in Ashington. Yes,
2: yes. Oh, so that paper came out of... I mean, there's a a particular moment in British history, the 2017 general election, when the Conservative Party decided that they could increase their majority um, by capturing the vote that they'd lost to the United Kingdom Independence Party. And one of the ways they saw of doing this was by upping the ante in terms of anti-immigrant rhetoric. And they went to the northern heartlands with this kind of anti-immigrant story. Anyway, to cut a long story short, they nearly lost the election in the end. Um, And they they lost the majority, and we've seen the chaos that's ensued as a consequence of that with the debate surrounding Brexit. And what I'm arguing in this paper is that they they made this fundamental error, (laughs) which was to represent the British working class in places like Ashington post-industrial communities who voted in large numbers for Brexit, okay, and voted in large numbers for Brexit precisely because they saw it as a way of ending the free movement of people, but they misconstrued this as being an anti-immigrant, a racist, a xenophobic sentiment, when in fact it's not at all, um, most people in this area, they have a sense of themselves as being immigrants. These towns like Ashington emerged just in the Industrial Revolution with from migrants coming from lots of places. They're steeped in socialist internationalism. They often value immigrants very highly because they see them as people who move in order to work, unlike the indolent unemployed youth of the post-industrial era um, from these kinds of local communities. So really what they're talking about is not a hatred of immigrants. What they hate is immigration, which is something different. And the reason they hate it is because they see it as part of a trend to excuse governments from investing in local communities, investing in local capital. Why do it when you can just bring somebody in from elsewhere? Um, so that that's essentially what that works about. Kind of redressing this narrative that's coming through, especially in parts of the Labour Party in Britain, that maybe the Labour Party should be coming more nationalistic, should be becoming, dare we say it, even more xenophobic. Um, it doesn't ring true with what working class people in Britain are about. They're OK with immigrants. They live next door to them. You
1: know, Having so. been in Australia and Melbourne, I believe, for almost 15 years, yeah. I mean, we pride ourselves as being a multicultural city and a multicultural country. Yeah, What's your reflection on that? <laughs> it just it's about- a very
2: left-field reflection. I hope you don't mind. Yeah, please. Uh, I mean, I, I just feel debates about ethnicity and multiculturalism there's a kind of territory that I don't want to go into. I don't think I've got the background. However, recently I've just written a paper about multi-autoculturalism. <laughs> with with hold on, hold on.
1: <laughs> multi-autoculturalism, yeah, with my colleagues got,
2: Jenny. I've got, sorry, I've
1: got, I've got cars from around the world. No, no, what it's about sorry, is bad joke.
2: No, what it's about is in, this is work I've been doing with a guy called David Ashmore and Jenny Deer, who's in architecture. Um, As you know, I'm interested in mobility. Most of my research is done in cars, on buses with people. There is a concern by transport authorities in Australia at the moment that especially with infrastructural investment, anger and tension on the roads is going to increase inexorably uh, in coming years. And indeed, after gender, car bite relations is the second most discussed topic on newspaper blogs in the whole of Australia, now, the standard way in which you think about these tensions is we all know it, though, the concept of road rage, which comes from psychology. Now, here I start to think about Bosnia. If I spoke about what happened in Bosnia as a form of rage, an aberrant state of mind, you'd think I was mad. The troubles that happened in Bosnia came from long histories of colonial expansion and so on, uh, deep-seated, conflictual social relations. Maybe we should think about roads in the same way, is what we're saying. Let's not think about what's happening on the road somehow as just an outcome of an aberrant state of mind, but of specific social conflicts that take place. Um, And we have done a study looking at how in many ways what happens on the roads between car drivers and cyclists mirrors what happens in situations of ethnic tension. There's stereotyping, there's a kind of hierarchizing of which vehicle should have precedent on the road in the way that ethnic groups hierarchise each other. The usual fix for these kind of conflicts is given by engineers, segregation, let's build bicycle lanes. Of course, one of the dangers of that is that you can't build bicycle lanes everywhere. Mm. If you normalize the sense that the roads should be segregated where they're not segregated, then you increase the dangers tenfold sort of thing. So we're saying, let's start thinking about the roads in the way that we think about ethnic contexts. Let's think of them as multi-auto cultural spaces where drivers, And cyclists have different identities. These different identities, cultural identities, emerge from the particular vehicular affordances of their vehicles, whether bikes or cars. And let's start talking about solutions, not by infrastructural fixes, but by developing a sense of different road users beginning to recognize each other. Now, we can do that in various ways. We can do that through legal fixes. For example, instead of having uniform laws for how vehicle conduct should take place on the road, have laws of variability that recognize these affordances. You know, cars don't have to act in the same ways as bicycles and vice versa. And also, educational systems should transform in a kind of a way to promote recognition. So when we learn how to drive a car, we learn how to drive a car. What we would argue is that in learning how to drive a car, you should also learn how lorries work and bicycles work. So you have appreciation of them, a tolerance of them, a respect for them too. So if we speak about
1: these two main ethnic groups, car drivers and bicyclists, what do car drivers hate most about bicyclists?
2: (laughs) Many, many things. We identified, I think, I don't have the the specific typologies here, eight key negative stereotypes that car drivers have of cyclists. But the key one, I think, is the sense in which cyclists are freeloaders. Okay? Now, there's a long story to this, right? Above all others, that's the freeloaders. If you think about cars, right, the roads... There were spaces for all kinds of people in the 18th and 19th century. You'd have pedestrians, cyclists, the earlier versions of cars, horses and carts, market traders there. Then what you got was a kind of segregation of the roads. Market traders were moved off. And then a further segregation. You got footpaths, okay? There is this drive increasingly towards roads being for cars, Okay? And lorries and buses. Okay. A kind of a kind of an apartheid, if you like, an infrastructural <laughs> apartheid. Sorry, I've maybe <laughs> over out. the top here. Right? Keep going. Now, One of the consequences of that is that of course car drivers are, are taxed. Yeah. You know, there's the vehicle tax registration and so on. And cyclists aren't. But a lot of car drivers have this sense of well that means we pay for the roads and cyclists don't. That's the but laziest of, excuse Of course, the it's world. totally lame, isn't it? <laughs> the fact is that taxation in general pays for the roads, okay? So that's the common stereotype, which is embedded in notions of basically roads being for cars. Yeah.
1: Is, is there a moral angst there as well, that car drivers f- want to be angry at cyclists for being uppity and you know, not driving, mm. polluting vehicles and all the rest of it. Is there some sort of contest there?
2: Uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, where do I begin? <laughs> okay. um, that was I mean,
1: a yes, I, yes or no question. I mean, look, no,
2: but bringing it back to ethnicity again, right? The common notion of how ethnicity operates is that the, the more different the ethnic groups culturally, the greater the conflict between them will be, Right. In the Australian terms, the bigger the difference, the bigger the biffle, all right, if you want to put it quite simply. But the reality is that, which a lot of anthropologists have demonstrated, is that actually tension is greatest when there's great similarity between people, but where they're forced to come apart, okay? So, for example, the tension in Yugoslavia, for me, is really all about the fact that they're all Slavs, even though they're Muslims and Serbs and Croats. They were forced to move apart with the rise of nationalism, and the hatred was strong because at that moment, they were seen always as one group appropriating the other group's properties, symbols, and so on. It's the same with the roads. You go on the roads, okay? It's seen as a common good, okay? But when somebody comes and carves you up on a bike when you're in your car, it feels like theft of my property, okay? That, that's kind of one answer to it. What, what I would say, yeah, there's a lots of moralizing goes on in what people term road rage. What I would say about it is the form that that moralizing takes, the idiom, if you like, of the, of the rage is very different between different places. So, um, just to give you an example, I've lived in London most of my life. I used to cycle on the streets in London all the time. Typical manoeuvre I would do would be whip down. If I see the red lights come on, I'd quickly swing into the pedestrian crossing and cross the road to keep going. Car drivers, irritated, would usually shout out the window... um, Get off your bike, you latte-drinking, XXX. Okay, latte-drinking. What's that? It's a reference to class, right? You know, that's the typical idiom used for expressing rage against other vehicular users in Britain. First time I did it in Melbourne, on Rathdown Street, angry car driver presses his horn, opens his window, and shouts at me, What are you doing, mate? Don't you know? Pedestrian crossings are for feet. Roads are for wheels, all right? Entirely different idiom. The idiom there is, I would, it's, it's, it's about rules. One thing I've learned in Australia since I've been here is that, sorry, I hope I'm not insulting you if you're an Australian. It's not meant to be an insult. We're a
1: convict society, go it's for it. It's this sense of
2: that we're a larrikin society, we're a bit crazy, we're a bit rule-breaking, as opposed to you Brits with your stiff upper-lipped way of going about things. But the reality is Australia was a kind of enlightenment project where colonists came here and they made a modern, bureaucratic, rule-bound society of the kind that they couldn't do back in Britain because it was such a mess. Okay, and, and and I would argue, and I'm I'm arguing with some quite more important scholars than myself, such as Michael Hertzfeld at Harvard here, that that conflict on the roads, uh, the idiom of the rule for articulating conflict, is a particular Australian thing to do with its history of how colonialism took place here, whereas in Britain conflict about class. Britain is the ultimate. Uh, sorry, I'm going, I'm waffling. <laughs> right. No, we, we, we love a good waffle.
1: Um, I'm interested, what's the most interesting thing you've overheard oh. in a car, bus or taxi?
2: Oh, wow. It's not so much overheard, but sort of seen and sensed. Um, it was a woman who I used to passenger with regularly in Bosnia who was fervently anti-nationalist, a good communist and she felt nationalism creeping into her life even through her husband who came to her and said it's about time that we had a child, a child for the nation Because in these times, even nationalism made its way into reproductive politics. You had one prime minister saying, the fetus is a Croat too. And she would get in her car to escape this. It was a moment of escape for her. But the key thing that I sensed from her when she was driving, the pleasure she got, sheer pleasure from driving in a life that was really tough and distressing for her, was this feeling that of changing the gears and accelerating and wrestling with a cronky old Yugo engine that would fall apart and threaten to stall at any moment. She reveled in the joy of being able to control this relic of a vehicle. And what it was about for her, I felt, and I'm convinced, was... This sense that for once I am totally in control of my body and everything that's around me, while with the creeping nationalism that's even taking over women's bodies through fertility politics, that kind of control is being denied to me. It was a sense of driving being really genuinely empowering for somebody.
1: When you have us think about mobility, Uh. what do you want us to think about?
2: Mm, Good point. Um, several things. One is I want people to take m- mobile experiences much more seriously than they have. At a simple empirical level, for example, there has been very few social scientific studies of driving, and yet the purchase of cars is the second... and Well, expenditure on vehicles and petrol and so on is the second highest form of expenditure that, that there is after housing. I want them to keep that in mind. I want them to keep in mind that life isn't all about being in places. It's about moving through places too, and that's as constitutive of social life as anything else. But lastly and most importantly... I want and this is the anti nationalist in me coming out. I want people to appreciate, especially at this time of heightened nationalism and anti immigrant policies and so on and so forth, that moving is absolutely natural. It's part of the human condition, unfettered movement.
1: Professor Andrew Dawson or Andy the Anthropologist. <laughs> thanks very much for coming in. Thanks ever so much, mate. Okay.
0: Thank you to Professor Andrew Dawson, Professor and Chair of Anthropology at the School of Social and Political Sciences, University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Steve Grimwade. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on June 14, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website audio engineering by me, Chris Hatsis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2019 the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatsis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.